if we can, if we can do that, if everybody's ready. So I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, descended in heaven. Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, so tonight we're going to look at the statements, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now, Dr. Moeller, for those of you who've, who've read the book, Apostles' Creed, he begins his discussion with a question. It says, if the Apostles' Creed omitted Jesus' ascension into heaven and his place at the right hand of the Father, would you have noticed? I thought about deleting it, but, but then I thought I might not have noticed either. So I wouldn't have really been fair to do that. But I'm hoping that we leave tonight with a much better understanding of just how important this actually is to our Christian faith and to the gospel. So let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together. We thank you for the opportunity to think through these words. We thank you for the benefit that we have to stand on the shoulders of giants who have grappled with biblical truths and fought off heresies and fought off false doctrine. Lord, we're just so thankful that we've got the resources and your word that we can look at so freely in this country right now that we can study this and ponder the great work of your son, not only on the cross, but to look at his exaltation, to look at the importance of him seated at your right hand. So, Lord, we just pray that you'll bless this time that we get to spend together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. There's, there's handouts right there. If you... All right. So when we think of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we can think of that in three stages or three states, each of which is captured by a different affirmation in the creed as we go through it. The first one is the eternal preexistence of the Son, the second person of the Trinity. The second one is his humiliation, and that includes him coming as a human, taking on a human nature, being born, suffering, going to the cross. And the third is the state of exaltation. Dr. Moeller, when he points that out, he, he correctly points out that many Christians just fail to see the importance of the exaltation. They tend to stop right at the resurrection, if they mention that at all. And Vince mentioned last week that the resurrection, when he talked about that, was in fact this transition to the exaltation. We might argue even that the way that we often see the gospel presented truncates or, or cuts off both the beginning and the end. Right? We often don't hear or read about Jesus' perfectly obedient life, completely fulfilling the law before you get to the cross. 
And you often don't hear a lot said about his exaltation, about what happens after the resurrection, what happens as he goes and is ascending into heaven. Greg Allison, in a quote that you've got there in front of you, in 50 Core Truths of the Christian Faith, lists out three major errors that he often sees. The, the, the key one for us tonight is he says that in communicating the gospel, one can often place an overemphasis on Jesus' death to the neglect of what followed. Without downplaying his humiliation through crucifixion, the good news must also emphasize Jesus' exaltation through resurrection, ascension, and session at the Father's right hand. Now, session, I may slip in and say that a few times. Session is just the, the term that, that theologians use to refer to Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. That once he's there, they, they refer to that as session. So when we think of the gospel, the good news that is Jesus Christ, do we actually ponder this piece of it? That's really the question. Or put it a different way, what would a non-Christian, where, where would a, somebody find an answer to what is the gospel? And, and I would suggest they would, they would probably start in the same place we look for every answer. They would start with an internet search. And when they do that, they're going to find a bunch of answers that generally skip over the importance of Jesus' life. They'll jump to the cross, like I said, and, and they won't capture that, that he was perfectly in obedience despite being tempted as a human being, despite being a man. And on the back end, you just won't find a lot said about the exaltation, the, the ascension into heaven. So I did this. I typed it into Google, what is the gospel? And one of the first links to pop up is actually an answer with that same title. It's an article by the Gospel Coalition titled, What is the Gospel? So I'm thinking this is probably a good place to start. I mean, the gospel is right in the name of the organization. And we're going to look at this because I think that this is where most people would logically start. And I'm not going to critique their presentation of the gospel. I'm not going to go through all of it, I will say, it was a little disappointing to me. Um, it's got these soft statements, carefully worded statements, that unfortunately a skeptic can read a lot into, a skeptic can bend it around. So if the only thing a non-Christian were to look at was this presentation of the gospel, this is what it would say. Again, you've got this in front of you. It starts actually with a good statement. It starts with a statement that you don't see there, which is it refers to the fact that we're in sin. Our biggest problem as humanity is that we live in a state of sin. We're, we're separated. We're rebellious sinners. And then it goes on to say that, but although God stands over against us in judgment because of our sin, quite amazingly, he stands over against us in love because he is that kind of God. Now, I can't help but pause here for a second. That's one of those things that I just don't like the way it's, it's written. That is not the way that we present God. He's that kind of God. It's just, to me, it's, it's awkward, it's a little soft, and if it's to an unbelieving world, it doesn't convey the level of conviction that we need to convey that there is only one true God. In any event... 
And the gospel is the good news of what God in love has done in Jesus Christ, especially in Jesus' cross and resurrection to deal with our sin and to reconcile us to himself. I've read that several times. It's not that bad on the face of it, but I think it's not that bad if you're looking at it and thinking, okay, well, it kind of has the key elements there. Jesus died on the cross. He died for our sins. I would argue that the reason that that probably doesn't sound that bad to you is because you're sitting here on a Wednesday night. You're, You're the same group of people who tends to be here on Sunday night and on every Sunday. You already have the knowledge behind these statements that, that you can read and then see the, the deeper meaning. So it goes on, and it says, Christ bore our sins on the cross. He bore the penalty, turned aside God's judgment, God's wrath from us, and canceled sin. The brokenness of our lives, he restores the shattered relationships he rebuilds in the context of the church. The new life that we human beings find in Christ is granted out of the sheer grace of God. It is received by faith as we repent of our sins and turn to Jesus. We confess him as Lord and bow to him joyfully. So I would ask, if that's the only thing that you read, who is Jesus? When you look at that, it is very much not clear who Jesus is. There's no statement about him being the Son of God. There's no statement about him being the second person of the Trinity. No statement about the incarnation through the Virgin Mary. No statement about taking on human flesh. There's just, you wouldn't really be able to answer that question from that statement. We do see that he died on the cross for our sins, and we see one reference to the resurrection, but nothing after that. So we see portions of the humiliation, and we see a glimpse of the exaltation, the start of it. So we have to ask ourselves, why is it important to us that we think about his ascension into heaven and he's seated at the Father's right hand. It seems that Jesus actually believed this was important. He believed it was important not only to say it, but to show who he was. In John 6, Jesus gives a particularly difficult sermon, and many of his disciples are leaving him at this point in time. And he asks the group that's left, do you take offense to this? And they were grumbling, it tells us. And he says, Jesus says, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The ascension is used so early on in his teaching to show us who he is. It's important, but we don't typically include it in the gospel. So we'll jump now pretty quickly, because I think the best, best part to start looking at this is to actually look at what do the Gospels actually say about the ascension, right? Now, Matthew 28, the last chapter of Matthew, not, not a whole lot, jumps very quickly from the empty tomb to, um, to the Great Commission. Mark 16, last chapter of Mark, does have a statement in there, and we'll come back to that. But the longest and fullest statement we get of these last days before the ascension is Luke 24. You can turn to there if you'd like. I'm going to summarize it, though, not not read it. In, In verses 1 through 12 of Luke 24, Luke recounts the discovery of the empty tomb, the appearance of two men in dazzling white to Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women 
and reminds them of the prophesying that Jesus had done about these events. And then it, that section closes off with Peter running to the empty tomb. Verses 13 through 35, we get Jesus appearing to the men on the road to Emmaus. Right? And they, they don't recognize him until he opens their eyes at dinner. Verses 36 through 43 recount how Jesus startles his disciples. He surprises them with his sudden appearance. He permits them to touch him. He shows them his, his hand and feet. And he even eats a piece of broiled fish. Now, really importantly, in verses 47, 44 through 47, it tells us that Jesus spent this time with them. He opened their minds to the scriptures. He began to teach them the, the fulfillment of the scriptures. And then we'll pick it up in verses 48, where we start to get a glimpse of one of the, the big important parts of the ascension of Jesus. So verse 48, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. We'll, we'll hit on that promise deeper in a few minutes, but just sort of park that. He's, he's told us what's going to happen. And then finally, this is the lengthiest account of the ascension of Jesus in the Gospels. John doesn't touch on it at all. In verse 50, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, Luke gives us this lengthy account, but it's still only a few verses. So how many days in between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension? You guys can turn to Acts 1, because we're going to spend some time going through Acts 1. So, how many? 40? Good, Dan. That's excellent. You are right. Um, there are no prizes, though, for the answers this time. So sorry. Okay, so Acts 1, 1 through 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with, oops, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. These are a really interesting 40 days. We don't see a ton of them, but what we do see is, we, is glimpses, right? So on, we see on the day of the resurrection, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, Peter, the men on the road to Emmaus, and to the apostles without Thomas, then eight days later, he appears to the apostles with Thomas. Following that, we get appearances in Jerusalem and Galilee, and then again near Jerusalem. And then Luke tells us it's been 40 days between the period of his resurrection to the ascension. And during that time, we read of Jesus appearing with a body that's identical to the body that he left behind, right? References are made to his hands, his feet, his flesh, his bones, the wounds in his hand, the wounds in his side, and he allows himself to be touched, he eats food, and ultimately, after all this, we get to see him visibly taken up in that body. Yet he's not always recognized. There's something different about this body. Right? He appears and he disappears, 
and he startles his disciples when he appears to meet with them. It's the same Jesus, the same body that was wounded and, and beaten and crucified in dishonor. It's now glorified, and it's, it's there. There's something different. So he's the same, but he's different. And he's establishing this distance with his apostles and his disciples during this period of time, coming and going. They're having to adapt to what is life like when they don't have the physical Jesus here on earth to commune with all the time. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, all of these appearances that he made as well, saying that he appeared to 500 at one time. And, and Paul has this amazing statement there, many of whom are still alive. I often, I often think when we're reading this, we, we gloss over these kinds of statements. I'm often thinking when people are reading this at the time that it's written, there are either people still alive or people who say, yeah, my dad was here, my dad or my grandpa. It's just fascinating to me that, that when we talk about things like um, the truthfulness of Scripture, if you're there at this time, there's still people walking around who had this knowledge, who could question these things, and, and Paul and others point these out. So with these appearances, as we saw in Acts, he gives instruction during this period of time. And, and we remember that Jesus' roles, he's a prophet, priest, and king, right? So he is giving instruction. We see this in Acts 10. We see it again in Acts 13. And after he's instructed and equipped his disciples, on the 40th day, he's going to be lifted up bodily. And that's where we pick it up in verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And skipping down to verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things and they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So in this passage, we have several truths that are laid out for us. The first is Jesus is lifted up bodily in front of witnesses. Right? They see this. They see him go. The second is he went to a place. It tells us over and again he went to heaven, a place. And the third is that his, his ascension is the triggering event that's going to usher in the promise of the Holy Spirit. But I want to focus on verse 9 for a minute. It says, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, when you think of the ascension, that's if you have a picture in your mind of what that, that looks like. And I ask that because there's a gazillion paintings and things, and there's also, if you grew up in Sunday school, there's all kinds of little storybooks that have pictures of Jesus going up into heaven. And usually those pictures are Jesus standing on a cloud. Not always, but almost always, Jesus is standing on a cloud when he's going up into heaven. Now, I've, I've checked this a couple different, different ways, and there's all kinds of weird pictures, by the way, on the Internet. You always have to be careful when you type in these searches about Jesus and, and ascension, and you're going to get some crazy stuff, but you do get a lot of pictures of Jesus standing on a cloud, and it's that what this verse actually says to us. 
It's not, right? He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So this cloud hides Jesus from sight, and this is an event that would have been reminiscent to at least three of the apostles standing there watching this, right? Peter, James, and John. So if we, if we were to look, Luke 9, 28 through 36, presents the transfiguration of Jesus. And starting in verse 34, it says, As Peter was saying these things, this is where Peter is saying he's going to build, I can build these tents to, to you and Moses and Elijah. Um, As Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Matthew 17, which, which recounts the same, same events, notes a bright cloud overshadowed them. And then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And the, when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Right? This, is a, this, is, this is not unfamiliar. Nor is the, the, the picture of a cloud representing God's glory unfamiliar to people. It's a little less familiar to us, but for people very well into the Old Testament scriptures, this, this points to God's glory. We could look at Exodus 40. I'll just read a couple of verses, 34 and 35, as an example. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And that goes on to talk about the cloud leading them, and, and by day, the cloud is representing God's glory. Jesus declared, it is finished, in John 19.30. And here we see the great vindication of his work, his obedience, his suffering, his death, his bearing the wrath of God against sin. Now he's being ascended, and he is completely enveloped, taken out of sight by the glory of God. It's Mark 16, 19, I said we would come back to that, notes, Jesus was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Now to say he sat down is telling us that his work is complete. Right? Jesus, Jesus isn't sitting in heaven. We see in Revelation, we see him walking between lampstands. Stephen sees him when he is, right before he's stoned, standing. Right? This is telling us his work is finished. Right? He has done exactly what the Father wanted him to do. I'll pause here for a second. For those who came in late, there are handouts up here and floating around if you need to pick one up. <clears throat> Any questions? Got it so far? All right. So he's taken out of sight. He's obscured by the glory of God. And the disciples, when they're doing this, may have recalled these words from John 16. You may want to turn to John 16. So it's a longer one. So as they, they ponder these final words that he gives them before he ascends, promising the Holy Spirit, telling them to stay put. If we go to John 16, verse 5, starting with verse 5, Jesus saying, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. This, this gift that will be poured out, so critical to any success in evangelism, it is completely on the power of the Holy Spirit, that the world is convicted of its sin. You don't even get to the gospel and the importance of the gospel before you have that conviction. And he goes on, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into to all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, this had to have been almost incomprehensible to the, to the disciples when he first said it. Yet we read in Acts 1 that they're instructed to wait in Jerusalem for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they're promised in verse 8 that they'd receive it and they'd receive power of the Holy Spirit to witness to the ends of the earth. We see the fulfillment of this in Acts 2.4, right? This is this event at Pentecost. We read of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and it's poured out on all believers. We look to see how does Peter explain that? How does it tie back to what we're talking about tonight? In Acts 2.32 and 33, Peter says to the crowd who is standing there waiting for an explanation... This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that the apostles then go on to proclaim the gospel, to, to, to explain the events, to, to proclaim Jesus' work here for us. And it's by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we actually have the Holy Scripture. Right? This, is, this is all talked about in that passage in John that we're now seeing fulfilled. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that the apostles continually go out and, and quash false doctrine. And where they're giving the calmness and the boldness to proclaim the gospel, even in the face of persecution. Persecution that we are fortunate not to face very much of here. So by the ascension, we have the Spirit abiding in us for our sanctification, for illumination of the Scripture, and for power and witnessing to the world. And in Peter's explanation, he points to the next thing that we're focused on here. It's not just the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but he points directly to Jesus being exalted to the right hand of God, to the place of power and rule over all things. We'll go ahead and turn to Ephesians 1. In this one. So Ephesians 1 verse 20. We're picking it up kind of in a 
awkward way to read it, but it's, but it's talking about the work of God the Father. So it's starting in verse 20, that he, God the Father, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's a beautiful statement right there at the end, that he is the head of the church, which is his body, and we're all members of that. But that Christ was enthroned at the right hand of God points us right back to Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And it gets recounted by Peter in his first sermon after Pentecost, where he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Paul in Ephesians gives us this wonderful view of our great prophet, priest, and king, the three roles of Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father which conveys the notion of power and authority. He tells us he rules all things. And this is really why we can take great assurance when we think about the Great Commission, Matthew 28, right? We think about the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that the Lord has commanded. What gives us confidence in going out and doing that is actually verse 18, Matthew 28, 18, that starts that off. And it's, it's when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the living and active authority over all things. And all things includes the church. Verse 22, we just read in Ephesians. That is one of the great benefits of knowing that Christ has ascended and is exalted and sits at the right hand of God with this power and authority, that he continues to be active in ministry through the church. Colossians 1.18 records he's the head of the body, the church. And as a head of the church, he's deserving of worship and our obedience. And part of our obedience is the great expression of our love for him in pursuing the mission of the church to spread the gospel with boldness. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 provides, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Moeller sums it up this way, The ascension of Christ, therefore, serves as a cosmic coronation whereby God the Father confirms Christ's sacrifice and subjects the universe to its rule. So we operate under our king, who is exalted, who has authority. But that exaltation is not just the king, he's also our great high priest, our mediator. He intercedes for his people continually. Colossians 1, that we just referred to, that, that talked about him being head of the church, it continues, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25, he, Jesus, 
holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So what does this tell us about the importance of Jesus' ascension to the, to the right hand of the Father? It means that everyone who has Christ as a Savior has a Savior whose saving power is active to the very end. He's, he's continuing to intercede for us. He lives eternally, and in that life, he's engaged in blessing and protecting those who have committed themselves to him. And Jesus is a unique, eternal mediator, right? a capital M mediator between God and human beings. He's unique because he's both God and human in one person. And in a, in a way, he, he draws God closer to us and us closer to God in that. It allows us to profess, like it says in Hebrews 4, it, it, that we can draw near to the, th the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's, he's always there. He's, he's active in what he's doing. Um, Hervin Babink, sorry, um, you've got this quote in front of you as well. I think Babink actually summarizes this role in a, a really concise and good way. And he says, Thus Christ is our only priest, who according to the order of Melchizedek remains forever, continually covers our sins with his sacrifice, always acts as our paracleter, helper, comforter, with the Father, pleads our cause against all the accusations of Satan, the world and our own heart, makes our prayers and, and thanksgivings pleasing to the Father, consistently assures us of free and confident access to the throne of grace, and out of his fullness sends to us all the blessings of grace." We're never far from our Lord. He is there interceding. He provides this great benefit to us. And as we've already said, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit abiding in us as well. Jesus has unseated that great accuser and sits there as our mediator. Paul writes in Romans 8, 33 through 39, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We see that benefit of that constant intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Lord is alive. He's active. He is at the right hand of God. He's there for eternity. He is our prophet, priest, and king, fulfilling all of those roles continually. And with him interceding for us, it secures our salvation forever. 
not only our salvation, but our hope for the future, because we're citizens of heaven. In John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be, or you may be also. There is a movement out there, that, this kind of spiritualist movement, that loves to, to uh, contend that heaven is not a place. Right? There's, there's all kinds of variations of this, but in the end, heaven is a state of mind, it's a state of being, it's, it's something spiritual, it's something that doesn't really exist. But we have this assurance here. Not only has Jesus told us that he's gone to this place, but he bodily ascended. That's, that's really why we spent time looking at what Jesus did during those 40 days before he ascended, the proofs that he provided, what the apostles witnessed when he ascended. He bodily ascended to a place, and it's a place he promised that we would join him. 1 Thessalonians 4 instructs us to encourage one another with the assurance that we'll be caught up and meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. An author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, tells us to, to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what a great promise this passage in John then becomes, that he's gone and prepared a place for us. He's run the race. He's done everything that he needs to do. He's been exalted. He's been vindicated. He's been glorified. And we get this assurance that he will come back in the same way and take us there. Now, Wayne Grudem, looking at the account that we started with in Acts 1 through 1, 9 through 11, puts it this way. These narratives describe an event that is clearly designed to show the disciples that Jesus went to a place. He did not suddenly disappear from them, never to be seen again, but gradually ascended as they were watching. And then a cloud, apparently the cloud of God's glory, took him from their sight. But the angels immediately said that he would come back in the same way in which he had gone into heaven. The fact that Jesus had a resurrection body that was subject to spatial limitations it could be at only one place at one time, means that Jesus went somewhere when he ascended into heaven. Then he continues with, Admittedly, we cannot now see where Jesus is, but that is not because he passed into some ethereal state of being that has no location at all in the space-time universe, but rather because our eyes are unable to see the unseen spiritual world that exists all around us. But that's not true for everybody, right? We know that some people have seen that spiritual realm. Not talking about any of us in here, I hope. <laughs> I, I, I hope. I saw Dan light up a little bit there, but, but uh, you'll have to save that comment for later. Who do we see who, who does get that glimpse? I mentioned before the stoning of Stephen. Right? So before the stoning of Stephen, the, the first martyr in Acts 7... 55 through 56, we read, But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, 
gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Amazing, right? Amazing to us. Would have loved to be there to witness it. But how did that crowd react? They went absolutely crazy in rage and they grabbed him and they drug him out of town and they stoned him to death. So not everybody was as excited as we are about the proofs of this exaltation. So we've got this assurance that Jesus bodily ascended into heaven and sits exalted at the right hand of God. We have a place in heaven if we believe on him. And in fact, Philippians 3, 20 to 21 puts this promise into something that we should look forward to But we should also live in the here and now in confidence that we can serve the Lord and use the gifts that we've been given to serve the church, that we can persevere through any trials. Paul writes, starting in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What a wonderful promise. We have this eternal, exalted prophet, priest, and king seated on the throne of the universe. We have a savior, quoting 1 Peter 3.22, we have a, a savior who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. He's prepared a place for us that we can look forward to and All he's looking forward to is his greatest exaltation, which is when he comes again in judgment, which actually takes us to the next statement of the Apostles' Creed, which will be next week. So why is it important that we affirm that Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God? It's a big part of the power of the gospel when we talk about it to people when we think about it ourselves, when we think about who we believe in and why we believe. It's because Christ is exalted that we can walk in resurrection power as we boldly live out our Christian faith in a hostile world. It's because of this that we can live a new identity as citizens of heaven. We can focus forward our faith. And we can experience the new covenant work of the Holy Spirit abiding in us. And we can employ our gifts in service in the church. And we all have gifts. Talked about this before. And finally, we're assured of our salvation through his constant intercessory mission at the Father's right hand. Any questions? You're good for one, Dan. You always are. No? Nothing? Close us in prayer and we can be done ten minutes early. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your redemptive plan. We stand in awe and worship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for the promise that you've given us in his person and his work on our behalf, for the promise we can rest in 
that he's active and living and ruling and interceding on our behalf. Lord, we pray that we take this gospel message out to the world, that we go take it to the lost. And when we proclaim the gospel, Father, we pray that you will embed in us and help us communicate the full gospel, the full gospel of your son, the good news. Lord, we just pray for those in the Bahamas that through all of the devastation that is hard to even imagine, that you would be glorified in them, that people would turn to you, and that you would equip people for ministry there. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.